If global political concerns affect your plans to travel abroad, stay with us as we examine some of the thorny issues facing Turkey and Tibet. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. On today's Travel with Rick Steves, we're delving into Turkish national politics in a way that might seem a bit impertinent for the polite visitor. But we want to hear Turkish perspectives on issues that have kept some American tourists away. Two of my well-educated and politically aware Turkish friends will join us in a moment to discuss how their rapidly changing country is tackling issues such as responsibility for the Armenian massacre in 1915, how they confront today's Kurdish separatists, and Turkish aspirations to join the European Union. I think Turkey is going to be one of the greatest actors, socially, politically, in the area. Later in the hour, we'll consider Tibet and see what impact China's dominance is having on this formerly autonomous Buddhist realm. Come along as we investigate some of the big political issues facing Turkey and Tibet on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Today we're talking politics in Turkey and travel to Tibet. Let's discover how understanding some of a country's political issues can add depth to our travels. And let's consider the impact that change is having on these two ancient and intriguing lands. 877-333-RICK, that's our phone number, and you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today I want to deal with three thorny Turkish issues. Turkey, with one foot in the West and one foot in the East, is, is just not living in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. A lot of complex issues there. And lately in the news, we've been talking about the Kurds and the Armenians and Turkish membership in the European Union. I'm joined today by two friends of mine, Turkish tour guides, Mina Karahan and Tan Aran, coming to us from Istanbul. Mina and Tan, thanks for joining us. Hi, Rick. Hi, Rick. These are complicated issues, and I, I like to get a Turkish voice on this. And, of course, you could have Kurds and Armenians and Europeans coming in here and adding to that. But I, I just want to let our, our listeners get a little understanding of the Turkish perspective on this. And I'll start right off with an email from Martin in Fresno. Martin writes, I am an Armenian descendant. My parents were born and fled while my grandparents were killed in an unadmitted Turkish killing and genocide of the Armenian people. I'd like to visit my parents' birthland, but I'm afraid. Why is the current government and people of Turkey so hostile to an honest historical record of the Turkish-Armenian relationship? So this is a very complicated issue, and I know that the big issue is Armenians want the Turks to use the word genocide, and I know it's also dangerous for Turks to even talk about this in Turkey. First of all, what are the legal issues for talking about the Armenian uh, problem, Tom? Now, Turkey doesn't accept that it was a genocide. It was not a government-orchestrated uh, act, first right. of all. So then uh, using the word genocide is really strong in that. So people refrain right. from using that word. It's not a government-orchestrated act. That's what the Turks feel about that. And my understanding is Turkey was founded in 1923, and this happened in 1915, 16, and 17. But Turkey is uh, one of the extensions of the Ottoman Empire, like uh, very many others. So okay. uh, if there's somebody to blame out there, there's Turkey and uh, right. a few other countries. Okay, so you're saying the word genocide really is implying a government action, and you're saying the Turkish government doesn't want to admit to that. So Turkey's not saying that Armenians weren't killed in this uh, horrible incident, but it wasn't a government action. Is that the idea? Uh, I'm not saying that. People were killed. Uh, right. That was a civil war, a worse of a kind, but it was not a government-orchestrated act. That's oh. uh, what I'm trying to say. Okay. Now, can an Armenian go to Turkey today and be comfortable? Yes, no problem. An, an Armenian can come to Turkey without feeling uneasy. Are there Armenian business people in Istanbul? Yes, there are Armenian business people, and there is an Armenian minority still living in Turkey in so, peace. And you mentioned there's a, a diaspora, a lot uh -huh. of Armenians living overseas. Yes. And yes. there's Armenia, there's the new country of Armenia, mm -hmm. just east of Turkey. Mm -hmm. But the historic homeland of Armenia, all of the ancient sites of Armenia, aren't they actually in Turkey? That's in Turkey. That's in northeast and eastern Turkey. But those people had to be uh, moved from their locations towards the end of the First World War. And that was a very brave political decision at the time. Think about it. There were non-Muslims actually decided about that, too, in the cabinet of the Ottoman Empire. But the problem was there was these uh, armed gangs actually hitting the Ottoman troops from behind. And for this reason, they had to take the step and move the Armenian population from there down to the southeast and uh, south. 
and this is when everything started. That was a sparkle that started some kind of a civil clash between the Muslims and the Armenians, as far as I understand from history, from my um, research into the subject. I'm not an expert on the subject, but uh, I feel like, you know, both sides suffered a lot, and very many of these Armenians ended up in uh, northern Syria and the southeastern part of Turkey. They later on ended up in the United States, and think of this as a huge trauma that lived throughout the years. So whether you call it a slaughter or a genocide or a civil war, the fact is hundreds of thousands of Armenians were killed in what is Turkey today, and they basically left to America, to Armenia, to... To Europe, to... to Europe uh, some of them Syria. stayed in the country. Mm-hmm. But the word genocide is a little too strong. That doesn't do any side any help. So uh, we're really worried about that word. This issue keeps coming up, and it seems like Turkey could say... It was terrible. We did a horrible thing. It's tragic. It's uh, let's make a memorial. Let's uh, live together now. I mean, what is your take on that? Well, Turkey is, uh, has a political point of view into that, saying that uh, everything has to be researched by the historians, not by the politicians. As far as I understand, Turkey is open to this and offering uh, to open up the archives and do some mutual research with Armenia. And I believe last year this was refused. Yes. Armenian archives are not open to public. The archives in Armenia. In Armenia. Uh, yes. So there is a dispute about who can, who, how can historians get at this and get the issue away from the politicians. And a Turk would say people on both sides have a political agenda in the way they want to describe this. Um, you know, both sides suffered from this. And um, if, if there are some people out there who would like to know what happened back then, nobody wants it more than the Turks. Right. But we just want an open-minded research onto this. And the fact is, if you're an Armenian-American that wants to go to Turkey to visit sites from your heritage, what sort of challenges do you have? You don't have any challenges. You you just go there and uh, visit. You know people in Istanbul who are Armenians, openly Armenians, and they run businesses. I know. I I got neighbors, Armenians. And uh, we actually, uh, on our tours in Turkey, we actually uh, have a hostess who's an Armenian. In Turkey, there's one thing. You know, we actually, uh, before knowing the people real well, we don't talk about the ethnic origins and the religious aspect of that person. We just want to get to know the people first and then do that. That's an Ottoman heritage. I mean, uh, That's an interesting sensitivity because a lot of Americans come in and they ask you questions about your religion. That's uh, out of place, you know, most out of the times. Place. And, uh, yeah, it's just like uh, you don't, you don't come into my house rude. and say, how much did you pay for this house, Rick? You know, you that know, would be out of place here. Yeah. <laughs> hey, we've got Paul on the line from Delaware. Paul, thanks for your call. I just recently came back from Turkey. One of the things that came up was whether or not Armenia was trying to start a revolt and start their own country. Is that true? Were they the first to actually start the fight? Um, Against the Ottoman Empire. I mean, I understand that if you're in an empire or or a country and suddenly people are attacking you from all different sides, you have the French, the British, the Greeks, uh, the Russians all attacking you, Fear is ruling the country, and therefore, from fear, hate starts to come, and also, you know, people make uh, assumptions, and then they start to uh, do bad things. So my question is, you know, is it true that Armenia tried to start a war with the Russian backing in the start of this? Well, during the First World War, I think Russia convinced Armenians to cooperate with them, against Ottoman Empire during the course of the war. So we got to remember this was World War One, and we have Russia and Britain fighting the Ottomans, right? Yes. And the, right. the Armenians were a disgruntled group within the Ottoman Empire, and it was sort of a tactic of the Russians and the Brits to get the Armenians to revolt against the Ottomans. Armenians were the last in the boat to abandon the boat, and they really wanted to do that. And that started uh, way back in time, 1850s, 1870s or so. They had uh, people from Europe trying to provoke some kind of an uprising. I think there's a similar thing in Iraq. The Americans told people to rise up against Saddam as if we would stand by them. They rose up against Saddam and found themselves exposed and slaughtered. And think of an empire trying to survive in the middle of all these attacks from all over the place. And uh, you should also realize that Ottoman Empire was clueless when uh, it entered the First World War. I mean, uh, there were so much losses of land, they could not afford to lose another patch of land. So that was a political decision, which gave some uh, uh, you know, bad results at the end. 
Well, I hope that people can continue traveling, and I hope that Turks can um, come to an agreement with the Armenians to reckon with this and put it in its, politi- in its historical perspective and move on. I think the, the good news we're hearing today is Armenian-Americans, Armenians from the diaspora, can go to Turkey. There are plenty of Armenian Turks living in Turkey today. They probably have their problems with the recent history, but the fact is they're accepted in the, in the modern business community and in your neighborhood. Well, you know, one way or another, we have to get over this and uh, start talking. Uh, I did witness um, one of our tour guides brought us to an Armenian church, and at the time, there was a wedding that was just concluding, and uh, everybody seemed to be in a very joyous manner. I mean, it it was great just to be able to be a part of that and see that, you know, this was happening in the middle of Istanbul. So you're saying a, an Armenian cultural festival around a wedding in Istanbul and everybody was uh, having a good time? Yeah. All right. Well, that's good news. Paul, yeah. thanks for your call. You're welcome. Okay. Gail is on the line in California. Hi, Gail. What's your question? I was in Turkey last summer right before the election, and I was really interested in it. And um, a lot of Americans are worried about the AK party, feel like it's an Islamic fundamentalist party and that, you know, things are going to go that way. But my impression of being in Turkey was the AK party was much more of a pro-EU capitalist, you know, pro-development sort of party, and that most Turks that were voting for it were voting for it for that reason. So I was wondering what the Turks thought about the AK party. The AK party, that's the party that won the election, right? Mm -hmm. What does AK stand for? Uh, Justice and Development. Justice and Development. Tan, what's your take on the AK party? They start as uh, as a fundamentalist party at the very beginning, but uh, I think they're beyond that right now. Uh, there's it's a greater a... percentage of the population voting for this party, not because of the fundamentalist reasons, but they're paying attention to this party because, uh, you know, they proved that they're part of the system. They're the new kids on the block right now. It's important because not, after 1980 military intervention, it's always the uh, new kid on the block who won the elections, not the old parties, not the kind of parties who were supporting the uh, status quo of the society, of the, of the state. They start with speeches of change. People want change in Turkey. That's the idea. From my so, perspective, it was a, a move to the um, fundamental Muslim sort of thing. And you're, not, you're a secularist in Turkey, I believe. Yes, I am. And you're not concerned about that? No, I'm not concerned about that. The, the point is, they start with the words freedom. They start with the words renovation. And these are the things that people uh, value nowadays in Turkey. Renovation? Renovation. Because state is, uh, is clumsy in Turkey. And right. uh, state needs some uh, reconstruction. So young, big business, Western-minded people are happy with this Young. Change. Young, attractive, and with the speeches saying that there's going to be renovation within the structure of the society. Now, I I really don't like to uh, paint a a dark picture here. They may as well be sincere with their effort in trying to become a part of European Union. And Mina, what's your take on the AK? I think another reason that people support AKP is because the previous governments in Turkey before were a little bit more elitist. So they were not really close to the people. They were not close to the regular people living in Turkey. They were a little bit more elitist, and they were thinking they were much more superior, or they, they knew more about the regular people. So but these people, these people are, are, not are more elite. embracing. They're okay. more, much more embracing. I think this is a good point. Well, that's a hopeful thing. We have plenty more on the Turkish political scene with Tankut and Mina just ahead. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at AA.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
Hello, I'm Mehlika Seval, Mele from Turkey. Now I'll give you a tongue twister in Turkish. Bir berber, bir berbere, bire berber, gel beraber, berberistan'da berber dükkanı açalım demiş. Which means, one barber to another barber said, Come barber, let's open up a barber shop in berberistan together. Bir berber, bir berbere, bire berber, gel beraber, berberistan'da berber dükkanı açalım demiş. Wow. <laughs> That was good. Coming up on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll investigate the ethnic and political conflicts in Tibet and just how that affects tourism to the top of the world. Right now, we're discussing how Turkey is tackling some of its thorny ethnic and political issues. Our guests are from Istanbul. Mina Karahan is a political scientist, and Tankut Aran is an entrepreneur who leads hundreds of Americans on tours around Turkey. We're at 877-333-7425 and radio at ricksteves.com. I want to talk about the next issue, and that's Kurdistan. We know that there's 10 million Kurdish Turks. We know that Turkey is very concerned about the establishment of an independent Kurdish nation if Iraq falls apart. And right now we have some tension as Kurdistan is, in uh, all practical purposes, an autonomous country just outside of your border. What is the Turkish take on this? Why, why do the Turks get so tense about the establishment of an independent Kurdish nation in the northern part of Iraq? Well, if you think of Turkish history, you know, the, the, the formation of Turkey, modern Turkey, uh, in our constitution, it's very clearly indicated that Turkish borders should be always, um, you know, even one little piece of land should not be sacrificed. And this is called Misakamili, which means like protecting our land. So it's a, it's a very important issue. And this is this is guaranteed and protected by constitution. That's why... Um, so like we say, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. exactly. So Turkey says indivisible with liberty and justice yes. for all in its constitution as well. Exactly. And we're, we're a unitary country. We're not a federal country. So it's very important to keep okay. our... Well, that's, so that shines a light on it. I yes. mean, as a matter of principle, Turkey does not want to let one square kilometer of its exactly. country go away. That's now it. there's these Kurdish Turks that have an option to join with a greater Kurdistan. Yes. It's a word I don't even think Turkish government wants us to hear. It's Kurdistan. No, no. No, no, no. This is this is a very fragile issue. What do, what do you think is going to happen? Uh, well, I believe personally that if there's anything like Kurdistan comes to existence, I don't think it can continue long because Kurdistan. We cannot talk about one Kurdish race. You no, know, they're they're all divided. You no, know, there. I know there are like twenty one different tribes within Kurdish within Kurdistan. Kurdish society. Yes, so they will be fighting with each other. Mm -hmm. So we cannot talk about one. You know. Kurdistan. Now, there's modern Kurdish Turks in Istanbul, I'm sure, that sure. are just embracing all the modern uh, aspects of Kurdish society. But there are also probably nomadic Kurds on the yes. border of in eastern Turkey that want to teach their children Kurdish language and mm -hmm. so on. What would their complaint be with the modern Turkish government? Uh, well, this was an issue like five, six years ago, right, Don? It wasn't possible to teach in Kurdish, you know, or like play the local music to Kurdish music. You know, so they were somehow su suppressed. These right. people, the Kurds, were segregated. But it's not the case now. Now they can study Kurdish, and you know they can choose to study in Kurdish. Yes, is if that they right? Like. Yes. So six years ago, there was a civil war going on, and there was mm -hmm. these uh, Turkish or Kurdish uh, terrorists within your country mm -hmm. um, killing people for their yes. cause. And as a consequence, the government was cracking down on it and say you cannot teach your kids Kurdish, and that yes. was that was exacerbating the issue. Mm -hmm. And you're saying today. Yes. The government has lightened up on the Kurds to help them uh, be more comfortable within Turkey. Exactly, because you know, if you keep on suppressing people, people will, will look for some some way to find a way to, to speak their own language or to exercise their own culture. So Turkish government understood the fact that we should just let them do whatever they like. But as long as the Turkish government believes there are separatists operating out of Kurdistan, south of the border in northern Iraq, that's true. the Turkish government feels it is justified mm -hmm. to send its army south of the border to get those separatists, just like the American government sent troops down to get Pantrovia when he would make raids into our country or yes. something like that. Yeah, but they're terrorists. Turkish government now can separate between the Kurds and terrorist Kurds. Okay. See, I mean, it's nothing against Kurds, but it's against the terrorists. This and it's violating be. the notion that Turkey is one nation indivisible. True. I'm speaking with Mina Karahan and Tan Aran, two guides from Turkey, and we're dealing with the thorny issues confronting Turkey today. I believe Turkey's the size of Texas with, what, 70 million people? Is that about right, Tan? Yes. 
and I'm about 98% Muslim. And the big issue now is, is Turkey going to join the EU? The EU is 400 million people, Mm -hmm. and it's an aging continent. This is a problem. The European Union, they're so rich and they're so educated, they're just uh, hedonists. They're not having babies. They're living longer and having smaller families. It's an aging population. Uh, And the average age in Turkey is only 25. 25. So Turkey is the... uh, I'm a senior citizen. (laughs) (laughs) So Turkey is the uh, regeneration of Europe if they're not going to wither away. A lot of people see that that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, On the other hand, it would complicate things because you have... What is the third biggest Turkish city, Berlin or something like that? I mean, uh, sounds like it. Something like that. So there's a lot of Turks in Europe already, but there is this problem of Muslim people not assimilating but having uh, um, stress within the countries in Europe. So we've got that scenario, and the big issue is will Turkey join the EU? Do Turks want to join the EU? I think most of the Turks want to join the EU, uh, but their only concern is uh, the cultural. You know, they, they, they want to keep their culture. They don't want to be European or they don't want to be assimilated by European culture. I think this is the major concern. But of course, the Turks want to be a part of European Union because of economic reasons. So you just want to get the economic benefit of joining the EU without giving up your heritage. That's true. Yeah, that's the main concern. Do you want to join the EU? Me personally, As yes. As a Turk? Yes. Why? Well, we've always been a part of Europe, starting from Ottoman Empire time, as uh, Ottoman Empire was always existent in uh, European continent. And I believe that the regulations that are brought by European Union will be of great benefit for Turkey. And it's going to be a great benefit for Turkey so far as economy is concerned. Or also it will help politically, I believe. To make Turkey more moderate and modern and democratic, you mean? Yes, So that's a stability issue if Turkey was to join the EU. Yes. Tan, do Europeans want Turkey to join? I don't think so. Why not? Well, there are so many reasons for that. Uh, There are very many reasons uh, Turks have if if they want to be part of Europe or not. Uh, They have valid reasons for this. People are scared that they're going to lose their jobs, but people are happy that they're going to have more social rights, this and that. The problem, the main so problem Turks is... So are happy uh, they're going to have more social rights, you're saying? Uh, y- you know, that, that's one of the reasons for those who mm-hmm. would like to be part of Europe, a uh, greater whole. But, uh, and Turkey, then you were saying some of the Europeans were afraid they'd lose their jobs because Turks would work harder and cheaper? Turkey has, uh, average age, as I said, is 25, and Turkey has a huge unemployment. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you look at the records, it's up to uh, 12, 13 percent right now, but uh, that doesn't count the unemployed, really unemployed out there. It's just uh, among those who applied for a job through a state institute. Mm-hmm. But other than that, we have a hidden unemployment, and that may go up to 20 percent, maybe more than that. So uh, Europe doesn't want the kind of uh, you know crowd moving in and uh, stealing the jobs. They had this by Poland. You know, mm-hmm. Poland and other Polish Eastern, Eastern, <laughs> Eastern European countries entered the European Union. They had this problem, and that's going to be a major problem. Mina mentioned the, the Polish plumber. <laughs> the European Union, uh, they're worried about these uh, hardworking uh, people from the new, the East that are going to take their jobs away. And there was a big scare in France, I think, about the Polish plumber that was going to be mm-hmm. doing all their work. Mm-hmm. And as it turned out, uh, it's, it's, it's not a well-founded fear so far. But I guess Europe is stressed out about people working harder and cheaper. Not just that. Uh, there's the clash, let's say, uh, between the Muslims and the Christians, right. uh, the, the unnamed clash. So you think in their heart of hearts, Europeans are really afraid um, of that? You know, you, n- you never know that. On personal basis, you don't get to hear those kind of things. But on government basis, uh, people are talking really deep into that. And most of the time, European Union is accused of being like a Christian club. Now, that's what so, we say. I yes. mean, they, don't, they don't accept that. That's so what the, we say. Yeah, because if you came in, if the Turks came in, they'd be one Muslim nation with uh, 25 Christian nations. And we're going to have more yes. votes than, uh, let's say, yeah, then, uh, Austria. Germ- Germany will be number one and Turkey will be number two number in the parliament. Two, yeah. Because yeah. it's based on, on population. population. Exactly. Wow. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today we're talking about Turkey and uh, thorny issues confronting Turkey. We have Teresa on the line in California. Teresa, thanks for your call. Yes, Rick, thank you for taking it. Uh, My husband and I were on a trip to Turkey last spring, um, but we were very struck by the dichotomy between the lives of the normal people, everyday people, in the seaside towns and in the interior. Given that kind of dichotomy of lifestyle and attitudes and secularism versus uh, fervent Muslim followers, how would Turkey try to get into the EU. So you're talking about people in kind of like in the sticks, living very conservative and orthodox kind of lives. We went into the interior of the country. Right. 
Um, and they're, they're wonderful villages there, but they, people have probably been living those, in those same manners for a hundred or more years. They don't have the same kind of ideas about capitalism and, and modern European society that the, some of the people in the, the seaport towns do, because they have all the tourists. Yeah, well, that's so, a good question for Tan. Yeah. Well, it's going to take time. Um, nothing's going to be easy, and uh, Europe is not ready to give Turkey the membership. They're not ready to accept all these people unemployed. They're not ready to accept this culture. Uh, that's what I believe in. Um, there'll be a time in the future when we renovate ourselves and uh, when we get uh, more into an industrial society, then uh, I think it's going to be time. So there's that. a striking but, gap but in your society. But that doesn't mean that Turkey should be away from the European Union right now. I mean, uh, there's negotiations going on, and it's going to take another 10, 15 years probably. Things are going to change. We had a great change in the past 20 years. Now, 50% of our population used to live in the countryside 20 years ago. Right now, it's down to 15%, 20%. I mean, we're, we're going through the change. What it takes is a change. And you got to remember, in 1920, Turkey was a medieval country, and it took Ataturk to drag Turkey out of the Middle Ages and create a modern nation. And today, there's still a, a big gap in the society, and the people in the small towns and the villages are catching up, whereas you go to Istanbul, and it feels like uh, any modern Western country. Actually, Turkey first uh, applied for being in European, European Economic Community in 1963. So we've done a lot so far. There's different degrees of union with sure. Europe. You don't need to be in the core European Union. Exactly. You can have an economic union, and, and that's probably where Turkey's going to end up, at least uh, in the interim. Yeah. What is but the issue? You, I'm you sorry. certainly don't want to lose the charm and the wonder that is Turkey at its heart by becoming too modern and too European. Mm-hmm. That are, was the concern. People are scared about that. Uh, that's yeah. the main concern of Turkey mm-hmm. and, the, and the people of Turkey. Culture. I think the governments are sometimes more in favor than the people because the governments see it as an economic uh, reality and the people want to preserve their heritage. Is there anything to that? In Turkey, governments are populist. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're <laughs> they, they go with the crowds. They go with the crowd. What is the issue these days with uh, human rights? I hear a lot of people questioning whether Americans should go to Turkey because of their human rights problems, human rights abuses. Well, uh, yeah, there was an issue of like... Um, the uh, torture in custody and these kind of like issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we've do, we've done a lot. Turkish government is much more careful about these, you know. And because part of the reason is uh, European Union's standards that you know, because as, as we're becoming a part of European Union gradually, because we're doing the uh, the uh, accession talks and every year they release like a, a report and which was just recently released uh, and everything is just indicated one by one. So we know that we will be responsible from these because your country is trying to fit the. Uh, the dictates or the uh, preconditions of European Union membership. This is a very interesting thing about the European Union. It is setting standards that are forcing nations that might be slower to get modern with this approach to human rights or Mm -hmm. environmental concerns or women's rights or whatever. Mm -hmm. And you have to meet those standards to to be considered for the European Union. Mm -hmm. And history will look at the European Union as a real catalyst for change in a lot of countries that strive to get in, whether they get in or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's it's an issue also for Turkey. You know, everybody is supporting this because whether we become a part of European Union or not, we know that we should do the things that they're asking us to do. You know, the standards that we should meet. That's so whether we become a, a part of European Union or not. We know that we will be prospering. And so. you are two modern Turks that recognize the value of this to live together in a, in yes. a modern and fast-changing world. Sure. We have Jim on the line from Vashon Island in Washington. Hi, Jim. Thanks for your call. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Yeah. Um, in 1969, there was a very famous book called uh, Teaching as a Subversive Activity. And it seems to me that with all of this miscommunication and inconsistency that's going on, that uh, travel could be the key to to unlocking a different image of Turkey. And it's almost as if travel is a subversive activity. And I just wanted to know what your uh, guests felt about that. That's a great question. What are your thoughts on the value of travel to sort through these kind of misunderstandings between nations and so on? Now, if I'm here to uh, tell you that Turkey is a modern nation, you're not going to believe me. Because yeah, uh, Turkey has, uh, has a record out there, and it's hard to uh, you know change this. It's like uh, Ataturk, for the first time, he showed out there. He showed the hat, said, ladies and gentlemen, this is what they call the hat. We're not going to be wearing fez no longer. This is just a hat. Well, and a it's hat. from Europe. 
And, uh, you know, people were looking at him probably uh, saying that, what's he talking about? And, uh, you know, he started this struggle of so he modern, came in modern he, nation. He outlawed the, uh, the, the little fez hat. Outlawing things. I mean, uh, these were the starting point of a, a revolution, what, what we call. It's in the minds and the hearts of the people. And uh, this is what we get in Turkey. It's in the minds and the hearts of the people. You know, they just want to be part of a greater think. They just want to be part of a modern nation in the modern world. And uh, they're doing anything in their reach to achieve this. And if you're not in Turkey, you don't get to realize this. You don't get to hear the people of Turkey, uh, you know, saying that, crying out loud, saying that, you know, we, we want to be part of this uh, greater whole. And, uh, you know, you just have to go to Turkey to uh, listen to people, talk to the people. And Turks are outspoken people. And uh, you'll get the answer to your questions. And there's a Turkish proverb, uh, who knows more, the one who reads more or the one who travels more? The one who travels more knows more. So. And I agree with that. I always <laughs> tell people uh, Mohammed was in agreement with this also. Yes. I think Mohammed said, don't tell me how educated you are. Mm-hmm. Tell me how much you've traveled. Yes. And I agree with you. you. There is so much misunderstanding between the United States and Turkey. And when we get a chance to go to Turkey... I mean, when you go to Turkey, I was in a stadium with 300 Turkish kids thrusting their fists up in the air, screaming, we are a secular nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are a secular nation. And I asked my guide, what's going on? Don't they like God? And my guide said, no, we love God, but we're very concerned here in Turkey with the rising tide of Islamic fundamentalism just over the border to the east mm-hmm. about the fragile separation of mosque and state. Mm-hmm. I didn't know there was a separation of mosque and state as dictated in your constitution. Mm-hmm. And Americans are kind of oblivious to this unless they travel and they, and they find themselves surrounded by people who uh, are waging pretty exciting struggles as their government evolves and their, and their nation evolves. Mm-hmm. Jim, thank you so much for your call. Uh, you're welcome. We've been dealing with the thorny issues facing the Turkish nation, and it's quite a challenge. And I'm curious, uh, Mina and Tan, how you see the the future for Turkey. Mina, what do you see? I think Turkish people are, um, as Tan already said, we have so many young people, and the education level is increasing. I think Turkey is becoming one of the most dynamic and fastest-growing countries around the area. And because of our very strategic location, I think Turkey is going to be one of the greatest actors in the area, socially, politically, and it's a great country to visit. So we're waiting everyone to Turkey. So you're positive. You're the young, you're the young generation. I'm, I'm the positive one. You're going to yeah. make Turkey succeed. Great. Tan, yes. what do you think? F- future is what you create. So uh, we're doing all we can to uh, put Turkey in the league of the developed countries. We'll do everything we can. Beautiful. Can I say inshallah? Inshallah. inshallah. <laughs> all right. Merhaba. Merhaba. <laughs> Our next stop is Tibet on Travel with Rick Steves with Lonely Planet author Michael Cohn. You can join our ongoing conversation by emailing us at radio at ricksteves.com or by posting your comments to our message boards in the radio section at ricksteves.com. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today we're traveling to Tibet, and I have with me Michael Cohn, who contributes to the Lonely Planet Guide to Tibet, several guidebooks to that region, Central Asia. Michael, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. Thanks for having me. Now, Tibet is this mysterious Buddhist kingdom that is quite misunderstood by a lot of Americans dreaming about traveling to Central Asia. What do you find the magic of Tibet? Why, do, why is that your specialty? 
I went to Tibet when I was 19 the first time, and I, I just fell in love with the place. Everything about it from the, from the high mountains of the Himalayas to this kind of mystical Buddhist culture. And the Tibetan people are, are just incredibly friendly and, and welcoming and always smiling. It's just, it's very otherworldly and, and really nothing, nothing like anywhere else I've ever been. Would you say it's purely Buddhist? Is that the dominant religion? Yes, Tibetan Buddhism developed from the uh, the eighth century, and it, it's been going strong. You know, there's a lot of changes now in in religion in Tibet uh, these days, but uh, Tibetan Buddhism is is still the dominant religion. Well, let's get right into that because that's the big question for a lot of people considering traveling to Tibet: is Will you experience Tibetan culture, or will you experience imported Chinese culture? The country was open to tourists back in the 1980s, and since then, China has liberated the country from its traditional culture, hasn't it? Yeah, there are there are many changes happening in Tibet, and it accelerates all the time with the Han population uh, moving up there. So Tibetan culture has eroded a lot over the last 50 years. If you went 20 years ago, you'd find it more traditionally Tibetan, and today it's diluted by lots of Chinese settlers. It depends where. Yeah, in Lhasa, people just tend to wear street clothes now in Lhasa. In other parts of Tibet, it's still quite culturally intact. There are actually areas of, of other parts of China, like in Gansu province or, or Sichuan, where there are Tibetan communities still living that dress in um, a more traditional fashion and have kind of a, a tighter reign on, on the religion, or even parts of, uh, of India where the Tibetan communities still live. But, but in Lhasa, Lhasa is changing very fast. It's becoming more of a Chinese city. So that's almost ironic that if you're looking for a traditional Tibetan culture, you're less likely to find it in Lhasa, in the capital. Yeah, you need to get further away from, from the big cities now, like um, Shigatsa or these other places around there that would have been more traditional culture. But now you have to move further into the valleys and up into these mountain communities where the influences are not so strong. So if you're looking for the traditional Tibetan culture, what's your best tip? I think that you would need to get on a bus and get away from Lhasa. Um, there are some regions that are, that are still extremely traditional. You could go out to Mount Kailash, which is a three-day pilgrimage around uh, the holy mountain, Mount Kailash. And to get there requires a good week to get out there and then to do it and then come back. So it's like a, you know, a good three weeks. Hmm. And then there are other places you could go in, in Gansu and in, in Shiaha. But basically, you kind of need to read up on Tibet and just you can't expect to go straight to Lhasa and expect to find this magical kingdom with the Buddhist god king sitting up in the Patala because actually he's not there anymore and, and things have changed so much and it's really turning into sort of a, a Chinese city with the big straight boulevards and everything. You, you wouldn't find um, traditional culture so much in Lhasa as you would have. Now, when you were a student, you established a political group called the Free Tibet Campaign, right? Mm-hmm. Down and, in Santa Barbara, yeah. And today, it must anger you to go back and see how this uh, traditional culture has been squashed by the superpower of the region. It is a tragedy, definitely. Um, It's kind of heartbreaking as well. I don't think China's ever going to let go of it, and this is just something that some people are starting to accept and and understand it, and other people are looking for ways to fight against this Chinese influence. Is it the Chinese agenda to go into those valleys you were talking about and go into those regions and ultimately replace all of Tibetan culture with Chinese culture? I don't think the Chinese care so much about eradicating Tibetan culture. They know that tourists go there. They know that tourism is a big business. They understand keeping um, traditional culture alive is going to allow tourists to come back. So the, the culture will never die out. But when you go to a monastery and you think that this is such an amazing experience and these Tibetans have freedom of religion and, and you hear that you know there's no freedom of religion in China and you think, well, well, maybe there is because these Tibetan monasteries are intact. But actually in those monasteries, there are Chinese agents that are basically spying on the monks and making sure that there's no dissent in there. So what the tourist sees is not always the reality of the situation. Hmm. Well, that's important for a visitor to understand. I know in the beginning of your book, the Dalai Lama, he sounded very warm and sweet and, of course, nonviolent and not even judgmental against the Chinese. Has he given up on nationhood now? What What's his take on the current situation? The Dalai Lama has basically given up on the idea of independence Some of his closest people want to go into dialogue with China, and China refuses. They consider him a separatist. His ultimate goal, I think, now is autonomy within China, Tibetan self-rule within China. And I think that's sort of his more realistic goal. He switched maybe 15 to 20 years ago from independence to autonomy. Hmm. But the Chinese still wouldn't listen to this because they wouldn't believe it. For them, this is still a separatist issue. 
But his, his nonviolence and his, his spirituality sure comes through in the letter he wrote in your book. It does. What you read is the Buddhist mentality, the nonviolence, and the Dalai Lama has always preached nonviolence. Now, if you're traveling all the way to that region and you want to experience Tibetan culture, I keep hearing you can experience it outside of Tibet, actually surprisingly well. When I was in Nepal, I was impressed by the strength of the Tibetan culture in what seemed like refugee camps. What's the status of those these days? There are Tibetan refugee camps all over India and parts of Nepal. There are Tibetan communities that that have lived there for centuries. For example, in Mustang in Nepal, it's basically a Tibetan community. And you can also experience similar Tibetan Buddhism in Ladakh, which is a northern portion of of India. They don't speak Tibetan, but basically they, they follow Tibetan religion. And Bhutan is similar in that sense. In Dharamsala, where the Dalai Lama has his government in exile, you can experience Tibetan culture freely, and, and it's a very welcoming place for tourism as well. I'm speaking with Michael Cohn, and Michael writes the Lonely Planet Guide to Tibet. Michael, if you're looking for Tibetan culture, you need to understand Buddhism, I would think. The pilgrimage is a big deal in, in Buddhist culture, and reincarnation is important. Give us a quick thumbnail on uh, what to look for as travelers when we're in Buddhist countries, whether it's Tibet or Ladakh or parts of India that are Buddhist. For the Buddhist, the important thing is to gain karma for the next lifetime. This lifetime is really kind of meaningless. So future lifetimes are important. And if you can gain karma in this lifetime by doing good deeds, by going on pilgrimages, by, by praying, you can gain karma, and the next life you'll be better off. So in Tibet, you'll frequently see people going on pilgrimage. It's quite, quite amazing, frankly. You'll see them walking on highways. Sometimes their pilgrimage might take two years, and um, they might prostrate themselves the entire way to Lhasa, which is basically like sliding on the ground forward, standing up and praying again, sliding down on the ground, and they'll walk like this for months on end. When they get to Lhasa, they'll do a circuit, a kora, around the Patala Palace, and they'll prostrate themselves for hours on end in front of the Patala Palace. And this is all to gain merit for the next lifetime. So gaining karma is a big part of your sightseeing, actually. You'll see prayer wheels, you'll see all the prayer flags and processions. Uh, You're likely to see this even today as you have in past generations? Yes. Yeah. People haven't lost their faith. I mean, that's the one amazing thing about Tibetans is despite this occupation by China, they haven't lost their faith in Buddhism or the Dalai Lama at all. So you would still see people going on pilgrimages and turning prayer wheels and, and, and things like this, just as you would in other parts, as we mentioned, in, in India or other parts of China. Or So, Michael, what, what do you think when you look at a procession of people who are dragging their bodies and throwing them down and, and doing all of this suffering for their faith. How is that as a tourist? Do you feel like a voyeur? Do you feel comfortable with that? It's a good question. I, I admire it immensely. You know, this is something that I wouldn't that I couldn't do myself. And I just I admire their steadfastness and their faith because you've seen in, in other cultures how the beliefs have been eroded in the Soviet Union, for example, seventy years of atheism kind of disrupted religion. But in Tibet, that hasn't happened. People still have not lost the faith at all. For me, it's it's wonderful to experience that and to see that because, you know, you know, in our own culture, people have sort of lost the faith in many ways. And the power of that faith in the face of giant superpower and aggressive China, to me, it almost reminds me of the power of Christian faith in the face of the Roman Empire in ancient times. Uh, how is mm-hmm. materialism a part of the Buddhist situation? Don't Buddhists by definition, want to be non-materialistic, and the yeah, modernic sure. push is for materialism. Mm-hmm. And this is something that has kind of affected Lhasa. In Lhasa, where you get uh, you know cell phones and computers and cameras, and sure, there are some Tibetans that have gone that way. There is some effect by the intruding culture and, and materialism, and that's something that probably can't be avoided. Are there any tips that you would give uh, non-Buddhist visitors so they're um, thoughtful and, and not stepping on the culture? Well, Tibetans are very forgiving, actually, so <laughs> so you can commit a lot of faux pas and they'll understand that you're a foreigner and, and you didn't know, and they'll maybe they'll give you some advice of their own about how to act a certain way in, in a monastery or in a temple. Oh, that's good. Yeah, basically, you, you wouldn't want to do anything to accelerate the problems there, like giving lots of money or candy to, to children on the street who wouldn't know anything about hygiene, for example. So common sense in the first world meets yeah, developing world sort sure, of approach. Sure. Let's talk practicalities just for a minute. I'm speaking with Michael Cohn, who writes The Lonely Planet Guide to Tibet. Uh, you've got high altitude. That's a concern. Visas, uh, language barrier. Talk a little bit about that, please. 
The altitude is something that affects everyone. Obviously, if you're coming down from sea level, if you're traveling from anywhere in China or, or India, and you, and you get up to these extreme altitudes of Lhasa, which is over 10,000 feet, you do feel lightheaded for a couple of days, and that goes away. But that will come back if you are planning to hike up in the mountains, and there are some passes that, that hit 5,000 feet, or if you go up to uh, the base camp at uh, Mount Everest, there are pills that you can take to counter that effect. Does your shampoo explode when you get it off the plane? <laughs> yeah, you open up your water bottles and every, everything is all soaked because, yeah, everything is exploded. Is that right? So what is the practical tip? Do you put it in a Ziploc baggie? Yeah, or you could reduce half the size of uh, whatever you have, cut it in half, so there's still some empty space there. Or, you know, of course, in Lhasa, if you, you didn't bring toothpaste at all, you could just buy it there. Now, just as far as nitty-gritty goes, do you need a visa as an American traveling in Tibet? You need a Chinese visa to go to Tibet. This is a lot easier if you're coming from Beijing or Shanghai. The easiest way to, to do it, or the traditional way of doing it for most tourists, is to go to the city of Chengdu, which is in central China, and catch a flight. Uh, I think there are flights every couple of days. Now they have this train line as well going to Lhasa. Going both ways from Nepal or China, you need a permit to go to Tibet. Coming from China, it's a little bit easier. When you buy your airplane ticket, they basically put you on to a tour group of other people that have already bought plane tickets. So you are on this tour group with people that you don't even know. And then once you get into Tibet, you're free to do whatever you want. Now, coming from Nepal, it gets a little more tricky because you have to also exit with the same people that are on your, that oh are on my your permit. Well, that complicates so, things. And if you want to change that, if you want to separate from your group, then it involves a lot of paperwork and it's basically a big hassle. So it's much easier practicality-wise, to come in from China. Hmm. They're talking about, you know, they've been trying to change this permit situation with Nepal. That might be changing now. But, um, you know, as of the last couple of years, it's been difficult. Is there actually public transportation connections on some highway that goes from Kathmandu to Lhasa? From Kathmandu to Lhasa, basically, there are tour groups that will go up there, but there isn't a, a bus that will go from, from okay. Kathmandu to Lhasa. Got an email from Elizabeth in Sacramento, California, and she says uh, she's been leery about traveling to Tibet, especially with the new railroad, because she says, I don't want to contribute to turning it into a cultural theme park. Do you know of any volunteer projects that are really helping the locals and the community? So that's a, that's a good sentiment. She uh, wants to experience Tibet, but she doesn't want to aggravate the cultural theme park business that's going on. Well, what's your mm -hmm. uh, response to that, Michael? Basically, you want to avoid giving money to the Chinese government, which is supporting the regime. There, You want to put money in the pockets of ordinary Tibetans, which means staying in hotels that are run by Tibetans. Sometimes you don't know because it might look like a Tibetan staff and management, but really the owner is Chinese, so that gets a little tricky. But the idea is to put money in the pockets of ordinary Tibetans as much as you can. So how do you do that on your travels? You do a little bit of investigation. You find out if the tour operator that's running the trip is uh, run by Chinese or run by Tibetans. And if you're just doing local stuff, like if you want to go eat at a restaurant, then you would hopefully choose a Tibetan restaurant rather than a Chinese restaurant. There are huge numbers of Han Chinese that go to Lhasa to capitalize on the tourist market. There are vast numbers of uh, restaurants and camping stores, and most of these are owned by Chinese entrepreneurs. Hmm. So it can be a little bit difficult to find Tibetan-run businesses, but if you can, it's better to give your business and your money to them. I know China still kind of claims to be a communist country, but clearly they're going down the capitalist road. Does it feel communist or does it feel capitalist when you're in Tibet? Uh, <laughs> capitalism all the way. What's the deal? Are they doing communism anymore? Well, it's a centralized government. There's you know just one party, but apart from that, China's economy is super capitalist-driven, so right. it's glorious to get rich phrase that the Chinese like to promote. So it's a communist government, and there's no dissent there. But So it's glorious to get rich in the new China. Yeah. People are welcome to open up businesses and shops, and entrepreneurship is tremendous there. And Tibetans also, although not as many as Chinese, but you can find small businesses run by Tibetans. 
Yeah, and but the problem is that Tibetans really lack the resources to open their own businesses. So mm. this is where they're kind of falling behind. And this is one reason why people are a little bit disappointed in Lhasa right. because, sure, they, they want to find Tibetan-run hotels and restaurants, but it is difficult to find them because the Tibetans lack the money and the skills to really get ahead of the Chinese, which are at the moment dominating the markets in Lhasa. Well, and Chinese are atheists, and their new creed is, uh, it's glorious to get rich, it sounds like whereas the Tibetans would still be the more gentle and non-materialist, idealistic Buddhist. Is that correct? Am I well, it's not, so, it's not so black and white. I mean, right. in Lhasa, you could very easily meet friendly Chinese people that are welcoming and, and very helpful, and maybe they keep their Buddhist faith. But it's just a matter of sheer numbers. They come in in huge waves. They get maybe tax breaks to move from their home village in mainland China and move up to Tibet. So for them, this is sort of what they've come for, is just to make mm -hmm. money, where the Tibetans are a little bit of a daze because they're not familiar with modern business practices. Maybe they don't have the, um, the money to, to start up a business themselves. So for them, it's just, it's just difficult to get ahead. Right. Kevin in New York emailed us, and he'll be traveling to Tibet next fall, and he is taking a digital camera with rechargeable batteries, and he asks, is electricity available to recharge the batteries, and what kind of adapter do you need? You can easily bring any kind of electronic devices you want. The last time I went, I, you know, I came equipped with a digital camera and laptop computer. I don't remember the exact type of. You might need a plug to plug into the wall, but that's that's in the in the book somewhere. Whatever the Chinese yeah. use, I think it's I think it's the two prong one that we use. All right. So it, you might not need the plug, but uh, good idea to check up on on what they use. Definitely, uh, electricity is widely available in in all the cities in Tibet. Good. Michael, it seems like there would be so many communications uh, stumblers and uh, cultural little misunderstandings, even in gestures. Do people have some quirky gestures that throw uh, travelers a uh, curve? When you're asking for directions and you say, where's the Patala Palace? Someone will basically pucker their lips at you like they want to kiss you. And basically they point in, with their lips in the direction of the Patala Palace. And that is their, their way of pointing. They point with their lips. And the other one, the more famous one, is uh, the sticking out the tongue as a greeting, which is not so common these days among young people, but older Tibetans will still greet you with a tongue sticking out, out of their mouth. A little bit of adjustment when you get home. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, you don't, you don't want to go home and start sticking your tongue out of people when you greet folks. <laughs> nice but, to uh, see you. Stick out your tongue. Okay. Michael yeah. Cohn, thank you so much for an insight into a fascinating corner of this planet, Tibet. Thank you, Rick. Thanks very much. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online in the radio section at ricksteves.com. We had additional help today from Milt Wallace at the studios of the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism. Join us next time for Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.